Does mochi have a lot of sugar? It's not a lot, but it's still like a sweet, you know. Right. It it, it has not a little vague sweetness. It's like the rice sugar, you know. Yeah. But anyway, I'm I'm doing pretty good. I'm happy to be here. Have you have you done any Christmassy things while while in New York? No, I've only been here like a day so far. So. Oh shit! Really? Yeah. Well, I got here. I got here. At the plane arrived at like six thirty yesterday morning. Oh well, thank you for making us your. Yes. Number Priority. one destination, yes, I guess. Yes, yes. Yeah, I wasn't the impression that you had been there several days like oh, Ray no. had. No, no, no. Actually, I'm it's kind of a blessing that I'm having this happen right now because uh my brother in law's family is some of them who have like some kind of contentious relationship with his immediate family. Oh yeah. Are having dinner with the rest of my family. So I'm like skipping that dinner because of this. So. <laughs> oh, well, the timing is kind of serendipitous. This is- <laughs> Plan A is a refuge for getting away from, it your, is. Amen. Amen. from your uh problematic families. <laughs> yeah, like 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 Christmas in New York, there's like a lot of stuff to do, but I've been here like three years. I can't really rem because like there there's some things that you see in the movies, but you would never get caught doing in real life, like going to, to Rockefeller Center during Christmas. Oh yeah. That place, you're liable to get trampled to death. Yeah. Uh much less go skating there. Um, but there are some things that I've always wanted to do, such as like going to like the Prospect Center, I not Prospect Center, Prospect Park skating rink before Christmas. But I always end up doing it after because it just it, it, Christmas Day just sneaks up on you real fast. Right. And um, I mean, what what else is what else is there to do? I mean, I think it's the sort of thing too, where it's like for, for full context, I've been going to New York for Christmas for like the past uh, seven, eight years or something, maybe even longer than that. Uh, and I think you get kind of like desensitized to, I mean, maybe even like kind of disgusted by the whole concept of Christmas in New York, <laughs> where you're like, you don't really actually want to participate. You just kind of like are waiting and biding your time until like normal life presumes. Yeah. The, only, the, the best thing about Christmas is you get ho- like days off of work. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. What about you, Ray? Have you, have you done any Christmassy things since you've been here? I mean, I always associate Christmas with like family stress, so yeah, hell- <laughs> yeah. So like, hell yeah, I've done a lot of Christmassy things. Yeah, I, I guess totally. we, can, we can get to that la- later in the in the pod. <laughs> yeah, yeah. deep escape from Plan A. Hey. Welcome all, another episode of Escape from Plan A. I'm your host, Oxford, and so fortunate here to be joined by Ray. Hey, Ray. Chugging Hello. water right now, but... <laughs> Do you want me to say something? Oh, did you already say hi? I said hello. Oh, hey, what's up, Ray? And CS. Hey, CS. Hello, thanks for having me. And you guys are joining us. Uh, where, where are you guys coming from again? I'm coming from San Francisco. I, I did uh, a couple days in New York couple days in boston and now i'm back in new york uh washington state capital so that's uh, olympia washington just south of seattle yeah so thanks for coming all the way to the west coast obviously to to be on this podcast Thank uh you. you know your family obligations being secondary i know i know the <laughs> i know the real reason you're here we're escaping, we're escaping. <laughs> that's why it's called escape from plan a people come on this to escape from <laughs> that's right from shit they don't want to do so uh, so this episode we want to talk about so we are all pretty much the same age uh all in our early 30s uh, and uh, i think there are certain things that 
that we all have in common because of our age and because of our like generational grouping. So, I mean, I have to credit this to Ray. Ray came up with this idea f- for this topic. So, uh, wh- why don't you get the ball rolling, Ray? Um, just because there are a lot of things to cover, things like career, romantic relationships, familial relationships, friendships, and and so forth. So, I think there are a lot of things to cover. Yeah, I I just wanted to shoot the shit on on things that we talk about all the time, which is like life in your thirties, and I think it could have, as you said, a lot of dimensions. But it is a little bit different than sort of like life perhaps in your 20s. Um, and I don't know. I, I also feel like uh, I do want to caveat that every, everyone is at a different place with all different things. Right. And so none of this is like prescriptive at all, but it's sort of, I, I just thought it'd be an interesting lens to kind of get into things that have been um, on my heart and on my mind. Cool, cool. Uh, I think it'd be good to start off with, I think when you're in your early 30s, you're thinking more things like, career where you want to go with your life what do you want to do is your life defined by your career etc so uh, why don't we start off there then yeah i mean i i've been in school for a really long time i I did um i did like two years of working although a lot of that was kind of in china where uh it's not really like real working life i i feel like a lot of it was uh sort of like finding myself in china honestly so let's back up so when did you go to china so I went to China in 2008 to 2010. Uh, I did a Fulbright there, which is the closest thing to 16th century patronage uh, <laughs> as possible. So I was like doing all sorts of stuff. I was doing a good amount of freelance photography of like Chinese punk bands. And I was like... Wait, you were in a Chinese punk band? No, no. Like, oh. free, like freelance photography. Oh, okay, uh, okay. I was doing a good amount of traveling. I was doing... I was broadly interested in like healthcare reform there. And I was doing a good amount of research yeah, I was I was like learning actually how to like read and write better because I've never never really gotten that down in Chinese. In Chinese, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Literacy <laughs> has been a lifelong <laughs> struggle as well. Um, I, I got literate in English yeah, <laughs> finally. And uh, yeah, so I, I was doing a lot, and I, I feel like actually I feel like uh, that was an incredible time in my life, but that was also a time where um, that did not prepare me for the adult world, you know. Uh, which is to say, like, I had uh, pretty hyperbolic expectations of freedom uh, and uh, an obligation and how much effort I wanted to put in on, on any given day and X, Y, Z. Um, and shortly after that, I went to uh, grad school and then medical school. And so that was six years right there. And so I've only been working, even though I'm 33, I've only been working for like five years. Um, so you went to grad school before you went to med school? That's right. Um, did you know you want to go to med school when you went to grad school? No, I didn't. You know, I, I, and I, um, uh, no, I didn't. Yeah. I, I, I just had a lot of doctor friends around me and I also was kind of getting, um, it was like a very quanty health policy program and I was getting kind of jaded at the abstraction of, of policy and data. And, um, I, I kind of wanted a more hands-on approach. But then I, I actually decided not to practice. So, um, I've been doing data science now for five years. Right, right. What about you, CS? I mean, I feel like I had a moment in my like late 20s at which I was in a position where it's like, all right, things aren't particularly going particularly well in your life. You actually need to like do some things to like just make things better. It does not even like succeed or like some standard of like expectation. Um, and so around 28, I mean, honestly, around the time I started writing for Plan A, uh, I had like started... M- 
just put the ball in motion of like trying to do things that would like be some semblance of a career that I really hadn't established at that point. Um, and so I think for full context, I'm the youngest person here just starting in my thirties. And so, but I feel like at this point, like 30 so far has been like a really good point of just being like, all right, taking myself seriously, excited to like be doing things that are actually like kind of building on stuff that I haven't really been establishing before and just like having more opportunities to like do things in the future. Let me ask you guys, because people often see 30 as a, a big deal. Like, what did you guys feel, if anything, when you turned 30? Just pure dread. Just oh, really? Utter, were, were, you counting down, were you counting down the days? Like, oh, my God, did, this is the end no, of my 20s I'm, I'm, kind of I'm kind of joking. I mean, it was pretty anticlimactic, honestly. Like, and, I had, and just full context, I had a really rough, like, late 20s. And so it, it was yeah, kind of, it was, uh, it was kind of like, wow, I made it, you know? Uh, and it was with like a tone of almost recovery. Oh, uh, may I ask what made it so rough? Oh, it was all sorts of stuff. I mean, I was dealing with my own health issues, chronic pain. Um, I, and you know, I, I, I talk pretty openly about this, so sorry to drop some bombs, but like my brother was, a is a, uh, recovering heroin addict and I had to, I mean, I actually uh, took the third year uh, of medical school off to basically go back to Michigan and help him through that. Uh, he was in trouble with the law at, at, at one point. And um, I had a friend who was basically like, hey, my sister went through something similar and it's really good to kind of get her out of uh, New Mexico. And, and um, so basically I talked to my parents, I talked to my brother and basically we just road trip from Michigan to SF where he currently lives. Um, a really bad like breakup uh, from like a long-term relationship um, and as well as career change and you know my, my therapist has always said like you know life is like a stool and there are a couple key legs to it and if one particular leg falls you still have like two or three left to keep you stable but when you have your health and your family and your career sort of all in flux it is hell and uh so yeah i mean I, I i rounded out my 30s being like holy shit i made it like it was one of like uh deep kind of recovery oh really okay what about you cs in terms of turning 30 yeah well, did, did you feel anything as you were approaching uh you know yeah. you're 29 you're turning oh, yeah. 30 oh, what did you feel uh i mean i mean i, I kind of going into this but just the, like sense of like you gotta do stuff man mm -hmm. you, you're like dropping the ball you're not getting any younger you gotta like build something like Things are only going to get harder from here on out. Right. I think it's the thing that was a something I just didn't really understand in my 20s of like things actually getting harder, not just in the sense of like my health declining, but just like opportunities, what you think is possible for yeah. yourself. Well, would you mind uh, just like talking more about what exactly you did in your 20s? Like what you like study in university? What you do oh, right yeah. after? Uh, so yeah, I, that's a good question because I think I'm kind of coming from this from a different angle from a lot of like people in plan a in the sense that uh like in terms of like the stereotypical tiger mom's like ideal i think i am her worst nightmare <laughs> Hell yeah! <laughs> where like i was really bad in school just did not give a shit about like ivy legs or anything just like didn't have any hopes for it uh i did go to college at like some public university that was like not particularly famous and i uh dropped out in my fourth year just like why not just go the full length um 
and then have been doing like kind of more blue card collar jobs still doing blue collar jobs ever since and uh I, I mean, and I've kind of reached this point now where I don't have like regrets about it at all. But I, I think a lot of it is context and perspective in terms of like the conditions of how I was raised, growing up in a single parent family and stuff. But I mean, I think it the thing is that I wasn't told that I like realized it's like you're going to be working. And I, I don't just mean that in terms of like, I mean, I, yeah, in a, in a class perspective, like if you're going to be like going on a doctor path or some whatever that's a lot of work yeah but then like if you're gonna fuck off and you want to survive that's still a lot of work and that's the thing that i've like kind of come in contention with where it's like one of these has like a payout at some point and this the line that i took just like there's not really a payout you know uh like i mean also not to like belabor the point of like going into like really hard shit but it's like this past year i the last time I took a day off of work was the last time I saw you Oxford, where I was like, it's been a whole year of just like working nonstop. And so just, not, not even a, a, like a sick day. Or? I took like two sick days in September and that was because I was straight up like bedridden. Damn. I was sick multiple Damn. times this year. Wait, do you, do you, you have your weekends though? I have weekends, but a lot of times I work through it in this uh, uh, full context. I just had like a job change where I was working in a restaurant and now I'm working at a grocery store that's like collectively owned has really good benefits. It's a definitely an upgrade. Um, and the stress level has gone like way down, but nice. it's still like the sort of thing where I'm working 40 to 50 hours a week. And then there's like a certain irony in that because like I know people who are in like, you know, who are doctors and shit and they're working like a hundred hours a week. Uh, and it's like this weird thing of just like trying to like kind of contend with that in your head of like, making things that I think were like big mistakes reflecting on in the past and like knowing that I had like uh, the capacity to do these things, to do something that was like more financially stable, I guess the things that like, you know, the traditional like antagonism, like second gens have with like their parents and stuff to me, like looking at that and I'm like fourth gen, I'm like kind of looking at that conversation. I'm like, yeah, it's like a, a real talk thing where it's like, yeah, actually that is a legitimate fear of like, you might end up working your entire life, especially with how things are going in this country now. It's like for sure the idea of retirement is like not really in my purview at all. I'm definitely it's something I'm thinking about way more these days, but it's just like the hope of building something more significant, I think, is something that if you're inculcated with earlier on in your life is a really valuable tool that I don't think really can be minimized and for me at 30 to be finally thinking about that, uh, I feel like I have so much catch up to do. And I'm happy finally to be in the position where I'm actually taking that seriously. But holy shit, do I wish I was doing this at 20. Right. What made you drop out in your senior year? Because yeah. as you said, so yourself at that point, I mean, there's like a natural human, like some cost fallacy, right? We're like, oh, I, I have already put in this much might as well see it through it must have been, something must have been really bad like you must have really hated uh college i know? think it was a lot of it part in part was like self-confidence i think for me in terms of i had a really hard time seeing myself in like an academic like i think i had like one class in which i was really excelling in in my sophomore year my final yeah my final quarter of sophomore year what, what class was that it was a class like called marx and marxism <laughs> <laughs> i can see that yeah i just like really enjoyed it i was it's like a pretty rigorous class in terms of like we read the entirety of capital but it's like all pretty painstakingly every chapter you have to write like a multi-page paper on it and 
you're not allowed to like pull your personal opinion. You can only write based on like the material and you're explaining it. Um, it was like a very rigorous class. A lot of people just couldn't like keep up with it. And um, I ended that quarter being really exhausted, you know, doing the thing where I'm staying up to like five in the morning, writing papers every night. But I had a really good relationship with my professor. I actually still see her sometimes and she's like asking me what I'm doing. I should be like writing more, encouraging me. It's like this thing where it's like, I had a window in which to like I had some hope of doing something more significant. Um, but I, like the thing is, is like my college experience as a whole was not like that. I think that there's a lot of moments where I was just like lost face and not only in terms of like what I'm actually going to do with this degree, but also just like uh, any semblance of like just a path forward, I think that I think is pretty common as I age, you know. Um, I don't think I was particularly unusual in that position. I think for me, it was just this this feeling of just like feeling it's not really worthwhile. And I have just like going, I went into college kind of doing it as more of an expectation instead of a want. And so I had squandered my time doing like all this other frivolous shit when I really I should have been investing in like these subjects, these subjects, these subjects. And so now it's this degree even if I get it, it's going to be kind of useless for me because it's not actually going to build to a career or whatever. Right. So what what did you do once you dropped out? Like what, what kind of field did you work in? I just wanted to get a job because okay. at that point I was in such huge debt. Like that, that was the other thing. My, my mother was like kind of just did the thing where she like helped me out in the first year. And after that, like there was no discussion about like finances. Did you think about loans and stuff? So I went through and my second year was honestly hell. And coincidentally is when I was in that Marx and Marxism class where I just like didn't have enough to eat was like Jeez. have having a really hard time making ends meet and in some degree like was a really educational experience because I think I had a lot of growth in that year but it was kind of more of like more of the threat instead of like someone walking me through this process it's like kind of like learning by doing um and to me that's been a really valuable thing it's like that I think that is in a certain way the best way I learned I think like in terms like I think about high school like SAT ACT prep stuff I was not good at that like I couldn't really I'm not a good tester at all um I think probably part of that is like some ADD stuff that I just like haven't really ever diagnosed I'm actually in therapy now and like talking finally about like getting on Adderall or something oh really which is I mean it's like exciting but it's like doing that in your 30s oh yeah, yeah. when I knew like people doing that when I was like 16 is kind of like man this is late to be doing it but i mean it's never too late for drugs <laughs> yeah for real like for actually, real. absolutely um yeah i mean i you know it, it's also hard too because like i had uh, such a hard time coming into contention with like seeing myself as like an academic in any particular way but also like really being attracted to the arts in this way that um while I had no like positive connotation as far as a career, you know, building off like being an artist or whatever seems like a really bad career decision. And also coming to the point where it's like, this is where my strengths are. is like doing this thing. I actually, uh, my fourth year, the last quarter that I really took, I was in like a sculpture class and, uh, my professor was like, you're pretty good at this. This is like, I'm going to like speed you through all these things. I'll like take you on as like a 
uh, independent contract, which is at my college is like a very specific thing that is like much more intimate relationship with the professor. Um, but it was like at that point, I was like, this is great that I'm learning this now. It's also my senior year of college undergrad. And I'm just like, I feel like I've squandered my time here. The debt is rising. I'm really more concerned about the money aspect of this. I just want to find a job maybe come at this at some other point, but also it's just like, I should have been doing this on my like sophomore year. And so I think that confusion just led to like kind of a lot of like uninformed decisions that made me in this place where I wasn't actually doing something that was particularly focused. Right. So what were like some of the first jobs you took uh, after you dropped out? Honestly, uh, for the past seven years, I've been just working at the same restaurant. I started as a dishwasher and just climbed my way up the hierarchy pretty pretty successfully you know um as successful as that position can yeah, be like <laughs> uh where i was like kind of uh doing a lot of management stuff for the kitchen um yeah i mean i and i honestly that was a really good job it was it was a really good job to have as a pay was shit but in terms of like the things i got out of it the things i learned about myself like i wouldn't be here in this room talking to the two of you if i didn't have that job um, I think there is something to be said about like not going to college immediately out of high school for everyone. I think that actually is like a pretty good idea. And yeah, for sure. That was one thing that I felt, I think pretty like maybe a year after college because you you go too soon and, and it feels like half of college is just is like an echo of high school. Right. And you do want it to be very different. That, that's the whole reason a lot of us uh, desire to go there. Uh, but well, your mindset is still you're still trying to extricate yourself from that high school mindset yeah. and it feels like college is only four years you are paying a lot of money to be there um if you wanted to as it shed off this high school skin of yours better off you did it not on not with that kind of like price tag and and that that, right. that precious time what's this hard thing too i think of like wanting to like remove yourself from that like you know that mentality of like that being in that period of life you want to grow up to a certain extent at the same time i think it's hard because you i think it's important to kind of like let yourself be that shitty young version of yourself you know <laughs> like just be real about it. like be like yeah, you're yeah. you're kind of ignorant you're kind of not really prepared to deal with like all these like bigger questions that you need to be dealing with soon and i think it's hard it's like a give and take because ultimately for me I wasn't really ready to be in that place. And I think being in a, like, uh, if I had start from the get go, just at like a shit job like that, it would have been given like, Hey, you gotta be thinking about like just basic need stuff, pay the bills, do this job. It's not fun. It's not when you, you what, what you want to be doing with your life, but you do get things out of it that are not immediately noticeable. And I don't know. I mean, I think there is something to be said for that. So it's a, it's a hard thing because, it's good to be like transitioning and thinking about yourself in like bigger and higher ways and also like being easier on yourself about like being young and like not really having a lot of direction at the same time, like having that fire under your ass of being like, yeah, this is actually a greater danger here. Like this is, these are really significant years. These are important years. Yeah. Actually, the, the thing that one of the things that those unite us threes, we're all interested in writing. Um, so yeah. when did you guys, uh, realize you want to pursue this seriously, not uh, not to the extent where I'm I'm gonna quit everything and 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 go this route, but I I'm going to make certain sacrifices in my life so that I can do this. 
Wait, before we answer that, uh, Oxford, how did it feel uh, to, you know, cross the 30s line for you? Oh, I felt absolutely nothing. <laughs> really? <laughs> Tell me about that. It was just another birthday for me. And one thing I attribute to that is I had like CS, um, that moment you had when it's like, oh my God, like opportunities are closing. I think I had a very, very premature version of that. It happened when I was 21. <laughs> When I, I realized, you told the story, yeah, yeah, I, I think it was in the college episode. I forget the exact number, but I had that thing where, oh my god, college is ending. I've wasted all this time, so that was uh, the like, oh my god, I'm so old moment. Yeah, obviously, in retrospect, absolutely ridiculous. But since I had already gotten that over with, and I think just my nature in general, there's kind of things that are inappropriate to do in your 30s, as it would have been in your 20s, maybe things like partying clubbing all that kind of stuff uh i was never into anyway so it wasn't like my life would drastically change now that i reached a new decade in my life uh, what, what did i even do when i was 30 i think i just i think it was the, my first birthday when i moved to new york was maybe my 30th birthday so I had like a like a birthday dinner and that was that and i honestly don't feel any different it's uh so yeah, there's really not that much to tell. And just, just I mean, where were you then in in you know direction, career direction in terms of yeah? Can you give us a rough timeline of would you study in college uh, after that work experience stuff like that? Oh sure. So I I went to college. I when I went there, I had this. I I wanted to be a writer for quite a while, but I was also I like various obligations. Like my parents aren't the types who would be like, yeah, do, do what you want to do. Um, and e even I had this f feeling like I don't owe them th like their, uh, the fulfillment of their like vicarious living or whatever, but I do owe them some security uh, based on you know all the things they had to go through, you know, with immigration and all that. So I always had that in mind, but there, there were a lot of fights there. Um, and I'd always had like half a foot in, in like law school. So, you know, uh, last uh, the summer after I graduated, I took the LSAT. And so, uh, you know, you get your score. That, that's good for a number of years. So at least you have that in the bank. And then I, I went to Korea for a couple of years after that because <clears throat> my parents had moved there uh, a few years ago once my brother and I were off to college. So I spent a couple of years there. I think similar to you, Ray, with your Fulbright thing. I, w I wasn't on any Fulbright, but it was a similar period where, like in your early 20s, so you don't have a lot of responsibility. I always had the likelihood I would go to law school. So you have that freedom where you don't have to worry what you're going to do in the near future because it's already kind of there. That's also when I started writing. Then I go to law school and then I have this thing. Okay, I, at least I have the next maybe five to maybe even like 10 years figured out in terms of at least how I'm going to support myself. Uh, and meanwhile, I will do this other thing that I really want to do. You know, ideal life, I would do like writing full-time but there was you know it's, it's a very it's very it's a rare and privileged thing to do to be able to do that at such a young age so I, I wasn't too heartbroken over not being able to do that and since then it's been a challenge of you know how to balance it and I think as I get older the thing that always that I had to question about myself is this idea of the, how much do I care about money and I thought it's easy to say that when you're growing up in your parents roof and you're, you're growing up kind of like middle to upper middle class. You never really had to worry about money growing up. You know, it's easy then to say, yeah, I, I don't care about money. I don't care what my peers are doing in terms of the kind of apartments they live in or the vacations they take. Um, so I didn't really feel like I 
ran into that test until like late 20s early 30s i think now i can confidently say i, I yeah i generally don't care about that but at that younger age i couldn't confidently say that so that that's a change i think i'm seeing as i'm getting uh, past the 30s mark just finding out what your true values are and and do you really believe in it because as i said i think there are a lot of people who can say that but once they start seeing their friends uh, live certain lifestyles they start feeling jealous or they feel like they're getting left behind so unless you're actually living in that situation you can't confidently say one way or the other right honestly i think i am in like a very similar place too where i'm like i asked that question and speaking as someone where it's like been a thing that's been nagging on my mind of like money is an important thing you need to get on that i still ask that question of like how important is money i think that is like a pretty age specific thing you know of like going through this process of like getting some sense of stability which i think to be fair i like have achieved to a certain extent um definitely way less than i would like to be but i i think i think you i think that isn't like an uncommon thing across class too of being like is it really that important to be so focused on like class ascension you know when like it's clear that like i like i'm watching friends who had very similar backgrounds to me go through this process of like getting kids owning property getting married all these other questions and their life is still like kind of miserable you know what i mean like it, you see them go through totally, that totally and it's, it's like that's hard that like i'm not and i'm not saying that as like a talk down thing to them i'm like i've thought about those things and how i've like wanted them at certain points and i'm like that's rough that you're going through that and i have to ask that question to myself now of like how important is like not only just like the question of stability, but just like the finances to build on all the things that we associate with that, you know? I think that is like a thing that is not just like a class-specific thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, our, this is like building on our relationship with money. I think I, I've, I've become uh, way more financially literate this year. Um, and oh, yeah. um, I, I record every cent I spend. So I, I know so that I know all my spending habits. That's good. Uh, so That's that, great. you know, in, in case I lose my job or I decide to like, you know, say fuck, fuck it to all this. I, I have a record. OK, like this is what I normally do. This is what I can cut out. Uh, I've been doing that for the last like few years. I highly recommend any, anybody listen. It's, it doesn't take that much effort because, you know, especially if you use like credit cards, you can just look at your statement. Uh, it, it's very I think it's a very educational thing to do. Just to know what your just like tendencies are. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, as I become more financial literate, you know, I, I over the last year, I, I think that, you know, one big thing that I think like I've I've never been a big spender. I've always uh, been pretty low key with that. Um, and and I also see money as as a way of freedom. But I have also definitely asked myself the questions like what is actually materially different um, in terms of at least this period in my life where the difference between me and and who is driven by money for freedom versus a counterfactual me who's driven by money to like buy random bullshit like is there that big of a difference at least right now maybe not maybe is there a di big difference between those two paths like down the line probably wait, wait probably. so are you saying uh so let's say you're saving up for like a rainy day yeah versus someone who's saving up to to put a down payment on a condo yeah I, th I think there is a difference in that because uh, let's say you, you're saving up to buy property. It's not just a property, right? Because that entails something that entails usually you settling down somewhere. That probably means 
you have family in mind that also means uh probably some kind of mortgage which is going to tie you down to a sp- specific place also sure, like sure. class status right right stuff. yeah I mean, yeah yeah it, it is probably a, a little bit different but yeah i, I mean i'm out i but it's interesting though like i feel like i've been justifying sort of being financially focused because uh, i've always sort of prided myself as not really caring about money uh, but I've sort of justified it in the last year because I want to essentially uh, take risks and maybe not work, uh, at least work traditional in the traditional sense of uh, associating your labor with uh, your a paycheck. And um, so I've been much more like financially motivated. And yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've that i would say i i would never if you if you told me like 10 years ago you'd be like financially motivated i'd be like no way you know and i think that is definitely a big part of growing up and thinking about money as freedom um and you know you know i can talk about like whatever uh like saving strategies and not keeping up with the joneses and stuff like that and because i do think a, a lot of um like i heard this economist give this quote where she's like a lot of materialism is actually about um uh, the immaterial and she actually encourages everyone to be more materialistic meaning like it's actually about the product instead of about social signaling um, instead of like signaling to be amongst a tribe like what is the, the difference between a Prius and a Tesla right um, and uh, yeah I mean I, I think that the the older I get the more I think it is, it is about like spending as associated with like tribal identity class and stuff like that wait wait so that means like in terms of like prius versus tesla it's like the material things that make an actual substantive difference in like the day-to-day of your life sort of thing she says more material as in like a product or a thing you use should should bring value material value to your life and less immaterial value more like which is like the social right right so if you are paying a premium for something it better i don't know like uh, just uh, do like something physical that, that improves your life, not just gives you a emotional boost because it, it signals to your neighbor that I'm exactly. doing better than you. Right? Exactly. That and that's something that is uh, uh, kind of new to my life, you know? Um, and I'm sure if I ever want to have kids, we'll be like even more magnified. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let's go back to the question um, that I posed before where all, the three of us, I mean, we're, share a lot of things in common one thing that uh, we share in common is our passion for writing and then something that we do want to seriously pursue and are pursuing uh, when did that come into your consciousness as this is something worth devoting a good part of my life because you know it does entail sacrifices uh so w- well, when did when did that start for you guys uh yeah i mean in college i was well i, I even before that i mean i uh I kind of, um, I was always like a math and science person, even in middle school. But I, I remember one particular class it was like English 11 AP, um, where I really love, like, I, like a door opened in front of me and, um, I, I realized like the power of words and, um, you know, I started getting into like, I guess I didn't know, I didn't use those words then, but like flow states of like, you know, writing essays for, for hours and hours. And, um, and then, yeah, in college I was, um, English lit and creative writing, uh, English lit major, creative writing minor, um, and and bio major as well, um, and uh, and yeah. So I, I think like the the ambition for that was was early. What about you, CS? I mean, I I don't think I had a 
it wasn't like when I was very young, I had any idea of myself as a writer. I had one instance in college in which uh, there was an assignment we had in which we had to talk about like our families. We had to interview someone and talk about like our family story of like immigration to this country, Um, which as a like class wide thing was like kind of unequal because there's so many white kids in the class that just like had a really boring project that they ended up presenting. Yeah. Which I actually think is kind of bullshit. I think it, like if you are actually putting the full effort in, it actually will always be an interesting story. It just sometimes it means that like you know your interesting story involves being like the owner of slaves and shit, and people don't <laughs> yeah. really want to talk your about that. Or grandpa was a Nazi, or yeah, something. or even more common, it's like your like Norwegian parents came in to Ellis Island in eighteen hundreds and like ousted someone from some labor population. Blah blah blah. You know. I think if you actually are putting the effort and you actually think about it, which I think a lot of people aren't, white people specifically aren't thinking about, it's interesting. But for me, like I had, I actually had to really interrogate like um, my family's relationship with not only immigration, but internment um, that in a way I hadn't really associated with myself at all. Like that was a pretty Mm. distant thing. Um, And we had to write about it from like, kind of like telling like a short story lens. So it was really my first foray until telling like kind of a fictional interpretation of a real life thing um and it got really positive class reception which is like not really a good flex because like internment is such like an easy like jerk tearjerker thing that you right, can bring right, up with right. like any group of people especially white people who will just like like will feel just flog themselves the entire time that you're listening to that story uh, but I mean, it it wasn't it was important for me, I think, because it was just at that point I had been writing only in like a very depersonalized intellectual way, and so I think that was good. It wasn't until years later, in like so, uh, full context, like I was doing music stuff for a long time, playing in bands and stuff, not really like expressing myself uh, creatively, but definitely thinking of myself in this like specific way or this specific avenue of expression. Whereas like performing with other people and uh, did that where I was like playing on like tours and stuff across the United States. Wait, what'd you play? I didn't, I, I actually, I'm unfamiliar about this chapter in your life. Yeah, I was playing guitar. I actually played guitar in uh, my friend's like solo project. Nice. Um, what, what kind of music was it? It was like punk music, oh, you know. Okay. Um, she was like kind of semi-famous in punk circles and. Yeah, Yo, you should link us. Yo, I mean, do you mind Send sharing your name or? Yeah, it... well, put, we can like leave a link in the bio. Sure, okay. Uh, but I mean, it was an interesting. I learned a lot during that time, um, just about myself and like what was capable. This is insane because you know I went to this process where I had played in bands before in like very small bars in my local small town, to the point where we were playing like uh, Williamsburg Hall of Music, which is like a much bigger venue and like bigger than that even. Oh wow. And so you're like on stage and you're performing and you're like thinking of yourself in all these ways that you've never really thought about. And it brought a lot of anxiety with me. I like started drinking heavily during that period of time. Oh, really? But I, I think it also was good in the sense that like uh, I was thinking myself creatively in this way that like was beyond myself, which was helpful. Because by the time I had like come down from that and the person had kind of stopped touring and I was like still like kind of had the itch to like push myself in those directions um i was still thinking about things that i had relied on in the past and i thought about that story and i thought about like writing i was like well i mean i might as well give this a shot 
So um, how old were you around at this time? That this you is probably time? about like 27, 28, I okay. think. Where, and that was probably about the time that I start, I discovered Plan A, honestly. Oh, really? Yeah, it all kind of coalesced to that point. Yeah, it, I would have been, because you were one of the first, like, guest writers yeah. we had. And that was, that was like two and a half years ago we started. So Right, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's also interesting, just a side note, that uh, you felt like you didn't really, like, fit in academically. Because I remember first reading uh, oh, yeah. y- your, your writing voice is is a fairly academic at least oh yeah totally it's nuts because i mean it's nuts because i think i'm actually pretty good at it it's just like when it actually comes making it applicably about myself in this way i think personalizing it is like such a difficult thing for me um yeah i don't know it's just like i i think in certain ways i like can maneuver very successfully around it it's just I never I always kind of felt like I was kind of in drag whenever I was doing it, if that makes sense, mm. where this it's like this idea of like uh, I'm performing this thing. No one knows that I have this like actual reality, lived reality that is not at all aligned with like the typical like I didn't go to Ivy Leagues, don't actually have this doctor like my poor cars in high school were terrible. <laughs> I mean, if you, you know. And then, like, to think of myself as, like, being able to, like, hang out with anyone who has an Ivy League degree and, like, have a coherent conversation where I'm keeping up. Back then, it was, like, an absurd idea. And so, I think it's, like, a pretty common thing, too, with anyone who has, like, some kind of working class sense of identity to, like, not think of yourself as possible in that way. Because it, it, a lot of it's just, like, the messaging of, like, what you grew up being told that you can do. Definitely. You know? And to like have that when you're in your late 20s, that like identity shift is like a thing where you're working against a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, as for me, um, like throughout college, I always had this dream that I would like that that writer ambition had been in me since at least high school. Um, then it took. But like in college, I, I never really wrote fiction because I was always intimidated by it wasn't until I went to Korea, I had a lot of spare time, I started writing. For me, the, the big test was, okay, uh, it's easy to write in Korea when I have a lot of time and I'm not really doing anything. And plus, it was, in a good sense, uh, an, a kind of isolated life because I didn't have a lot of friends there. I did enter into a serious relationship, but I, in total, in my two years there, I might have made like four or five friends as opposed to like uh, a, a social rat race that was college mm. that was a very nice break from it so when i came back to the u.s to go to school again i was always worried uh was that just like a aberrational blip in my life and i'm just going to go back where i don't want to spend uh my weekends writing or or any time because i i feel like i'm missing out on some fun somewhere and you know eventually um I, I did start to write and then you get over that fear like hey I think something has fundamentally changed in which you know what I am willing to make those sacrifices but now as I get older into the 30s and you and I Ray uh, we've talked about this a lot do I have to make even more sacrifices in the sense that can I straddle this these two worlds in which I have a steady job making decent money um, but also trying to pursue this path which i know a lot of other people are doing like 200 percent. they're like sacrificing almost everything doing it right and 
part of me uh rationalizes it by saying um like there, there, there's a certain like like I try to picture myself uh, straight out of college trying to make it as a writer or something. Uh, it's there would be so many difficulties doing that. Whether it's just like just trying to keep a roof over my head, uh, just all the stress when you are at a very young and malleable age, that would have uh, interfered with your own development and ability to write. Whereas when when you have the security of like a day job that allows you a bit more freedom and just this uh this like luxury of taking your time thinking things through not having to maybe write things that you don't want to write for the sake of a paycheck and that's been nice but at a certain point you do i think have to take that jump and my thought is uh on this side of 30 is that time finally approaching because you know, I have been saving up. I have been doing all these things in preparation for a moment. And it does feel like that moment's going to come. And if I don't take it, then all this would have been for nothing. I might as well have just like gone for it from the start. Because if I'm, if I'm going to miss that moment, then it will have all been for my, nothing. I might as well have just like blown everything and just gone to like, you know, just like bottles and models or that shit you know <laughs> that people do i might as well have just done that not that i i really wanted to but I, that equivalent like i i've been preparing for this for what you know so yeah that, that's my feeling uh as as i've turned 30 and and beyond i think it's like a pretty i mean i think it, it's not even a question really of security at that point at least for me it hasn't been where it's more of like an existential question of like if you value yourself and you have these principles that you've like built and invested it in then it's like this question of like what am actually is going to fulfill those things because clearly like the material chase of like owning stuff and like having that security is still very important while still very important isn't really sufficient you kind of have to like start thinking of yourself in a like i guess more political light of like involving what you're doing in your day-to-day more in a ways that is like uh, building something that is beyond yourself and i think I don't know about for you two, but for me, like writing is a way in which it's like you actually have like some handle onto like, I guess some sense of change, you know, some semblance of like, here's these narratives that are like proliferating throughout like popular media that actually I have like a great odds with my own experience. And I would like to see those things change personally. And so I'm going to like do that through the venues that I can, whether that is like having like a Twitter account or just like putting out pieces in like whatever capacity I can, you know, it's small things, it's personal things, but it's kind of like what you have control over. And I think that is like kind of important in in the sense of like developing some semblance of voice, um, which is pretty hard, you know, actually having when you're first starting out and you haven't been like building your whole life. Like you didn't start, none of us started with like, I mean, you've talked about, like, creative writing, but, like, having a serious, like, liberal arts degree, getting, like, an actual editorial job out of college. Like, you haven't really been thinking about that, and you kind of got, this is kind of, like, a side thing you've going on. It's hard to actually know what is, like, and in some ways maybe is a kind of a strength, too, but you don't have the roadmap to actually make, like, particularly informed decisions as to what's going to be successful, especially if what you're going for isn't what is currently successful. Yeah, I, I mean, even on top of that, like let alone the roadmap oh i I guess to to the roadmap thing i 
One thing that I do think uh, has been helpful is that, you know, I still think that the power of words are really amazing on a first principle level. I, I am a huge reader. I love to read. And I think that um, in some ways, like not pursuing sort of writing full time as a career has preserved that instead of, you know, like my mind is not yeah. like one time I was at this like, uh, you know, like writer doctor meetup thing. Doctor? what what was, is that like you know like this is like a thing now with like atoll gawande and like you know fiction doctors you know who's the guy who wrote like emperor of maladies like these mds who are now like published authors and oh okay it's like more of an archetype and um and uh you know i went to stanford med i think stanford has like a good like uh like doctor like humanities program medical humanities program and so um it was like some meetup uh where it was like a, um, a couple people read and i went to just like the happy hour after and uh one thing that was really eye-opening was that like a lot of the readings were really bad like from a from a <laughs> well and i'm not i'm not poo-pooing that i think that there's actually a place for bad readings and just like getting work out there and sure. like wait, wait, what made it so bad i, I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty but um, but what was really interesting was that I was expecting like afterwards, like, you know, during the half hour, people would be talking about craft or people would be talking about really interesting stories or angles or topics that they're really interested in. But it was all just like shop talk about like finding an agent, what sells, like basically mm, okay. kind of what you're saying, like, what is the roadmap for success right. that is outside of craft? And I'm like, that is insane if the craft is so bad and, you know, learning mentality, you know, let, let's all have like a you know, learning mentality. It's not about where you are. It's about your, where your direction, how, you know, if you're getting better totally, but like, like for me, I think that like, I see writing as like something that I want to do over a very long period of time. Yeah, for sure. And I think that like, I, I just feel like you got to respect that craft, you know, like, I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I'm really glad that like, I haven't like expect spend like years on like thinking about who's the right agent and like, you know, like playing the game. Right. No, that's that good. Much. Yeah. Or and not just the craft. It's, it's ultimately the message, right? You're writing because you have a certain point of view or a certain type of thing you want to get out there. And if all your, if, if that is so uh, unsteady that you're, because the whole question about what sells is that you don't, your message uh, is for sale. Like if it's, if you want to tell like story A, but it turns out story B is selling, then you're going to immediately change to that. That means that you don't have a rock solid message you want to get out. I mean, I, yeah, totally. And I also, I'm not a purist in that regard. I think that you have, you always, an artist has to compromise to some degree. Yeah. And like, maybe you should also think about like, if the only, if the, the only person where your message resonates is with you, maybe that's not a great message to get out of the world, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, right. Uh, but so, but like, you know, it, it, I just thought like that level of craft and that that level of effort allocation was just like really bewildering to me. It, do, it does seem like there's like this kind of conflict that you run into where if you're coming into this where you're not particularly involved in these circles of like what is successful and you're an outsider going into it and you have like this weight that you're holding of like wanting. Uh, I mean, I guess like just in general, like the representation game of just like asian american literature you want that to be something that is better than it currently is and you see your writing as like intrinsically tied to that you want to like elevate that thing you want to make it better than it is currently you want to like have like some positive emotion in that 
but you also have to contend with the fact that like if you are doing these certain things like the way you're presenting it like is very important as to actually of it being like successful in any like degree it isn't a really a thing of either or like you actually have to like compromise to some degree as to like what those things are and i mean that, that maybe that's like a bit of a simplification but it's like this thing where it's like constantly nagging when you're like writing about like i could write about like this certain thing but like no one actually gives a shit about that or maybe and even that might not even be true but in your head that is what it's like manifesting you're thinking like am i writing this thing that ultimately no one gives a shit about am i writing this thing that is like totally disjointed and just like my own perspective i don't know i'm like pretty sympathetic to that i think that is like a hard thing when you have no idea for like what is the successful thing and then you get this limited window of like people chasing like what is successful and you're like i don't want to be that you know right. but it also depends on your what like time scale are you looking at because it's yeah 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 like, absolutely are, are you thinking in your lifetime like you don't know what's going to last i mean like are you sure people can say you know the world's going to end in like 50 years or something but assuming <laughs> that society lasts for at least let's say 150 more years sure that, yeah. that's a long time generally you know like in, in a very uh narrow sense it's like you know a couple of lifetimes or whatever um i think the test is um if you could put something out there but you personally will not reap the benefits either financially or reputationally would you still want to do it and if the answer is yes i think that is I think that's kind of the ultimate peace of mind you get as a writer. Because then you're totally independent from, you know, like market success that you will see. Because there are some people who are just like, I just want to become famous and admired, uh, especially when I'm young, so that I, I can be like the big shot. Yeah. Uh, but, if so, but if someone says, you know, like whatever you put out there into the world, what you leave behind, uh, people will, it will become important. But um, it'll be like after you die, for example. And, yeah. you know, we see this happen all the time in art. And people, it, it's easy for us to say, um, like those people, I, I wish I were uh, that person, uh, like, like um, I don't know, like a Herman Melville, you know. I wish I were Herman Melville because we all revere Herman Melville now. But he died poor, forgotten, whatever. I'm sure there were lots of writers in his, in his day much more successful than he sure, was. Yeah. He probably envied them bitterly and all that um it's easy for us to admire him now because because we still think of him as as like alive and, and being able to enjoy the fruits of of his labor yeah but he's dead uh, for all we know he has no idea that that moby dick's like considered like the greatest american novel ever written he yeah. died thinking he was a failure you know and he probably thought his rivals uh did way better than he did so I, th that. I think that like relates a lot of what we're talking about in terms of like like existential question of asking like how important money is into your life you know that measure of success i mean it, like in terms of herman melville i think more applicably to like asian american lit uh, personally for me like looking at john okada's work with no no by shit i still haven't yeah, read that right? book it's always on my list but <laughs> I, okay, I, so I don't i don't know if that actually has like a lot of relevance to non-japanese for me it was a really important book to read because like this motherfucker he's not writing for any like wide audience he's not like writing for like some there's no identity of like asian american lit in what you're thinking about what is successful and what is not successful like he was even thinking of like having this only published in japan 
Oh, yeah. And no one in Japan gives a shit about this story, you know? They're not thinking about that. It's totally fine. But I think to me, that was like such a substantive uh, change. Like when I read that book, it's like just changed the game because I'm like, this is a guy who's totally writing, not just for himself, but like people that he thinks he has like a strong identity with. Like after he wrote that book, his full intention was to write like kind of. So he wrote No No Boy as like kind of like for the um, Nisei, so like second generation. But he really wanted to write a second book that was about like the first generation Nisei. And he never got the chance to do that. But I think like when you're moving in that direction of thinking about your like own individual people and like like where you come from, that is kind of like moving counterintuitively to like where I feel like a lot of Asian American lit is where you're like trying to include it into this like overarching POC narrative of liberalism and like including it into like this pantheon of literature that Asian American lit just really hasn't breached in a way that I think is at all substantive. Uh, I think that is like a really inspiring thing to me and like where I think if like there is like a semblance of like writing beyond your lifetime where our goal should be where it's like you're not writing for yourself entirely but you are writing for like where you come from and like what the like people that who influenced your life who like you are descendants of like you're advocating to them to some degree like you're thinking about their interests with every word that you put on the page and i don't think that is like a common thing i think it is ultimately like a self-involved narrative that is ultimately we get delivered a lot of times in asian american lit and that's a hard thing to connect like i'm not even judging the people who are like successful and like get those things i think that ultimately is like a pretty hard thing to connect of like trying to like connect it because it's like you don't constantly want to be like writing about the past you don't want to be writing these like pain narratives that like sell that like only a white audience are. But at the same time, that past is like the thing that gives context to like who you are it is ultimately a thing that like informs everything that you have come to like know about like your own self, specifically like with some like American identity or Canadian identity. Because ultimately you're not like uh, speaking to like plan A listeners, you're probably not in control of like some like semblance of like homeland identity in like any strong way. You are probably like some first or second generation immigrant who just is in some way disconnected from that and actually can't speak to that perspective. And so connecting it back to those roots in some way that isn't like deeply like self-involved, I think in like advocating for at the same time is a struggle that is like very important and is not done particularly successfully. I mean, I think what we've been talking a lot about is essentially dilution, right? Whether that be sort of uh, your voice compromised because of your proximity to the market and the market incentives or uh, market incentives translated into money or market incentives translated into white eyeballs. I had a really interesting conversation like a year ago with a friend who kept on asking the question like, uh, who is the Asian American Taha Nisi Coates? And, uh, and, you know, it, it kind of is, is a little bit like what we talked about earlier this afternoon about transpositions and how there, there's no such thing as the, the yellow Tassin because, because not because it doesn't like the, he or she doesn't exist, but because it's a meaningless term when you try to sort of cape like someone else's history and issues and some, and, and transpose that onto your, your people. And so, um, you know, I, I tried to flip that question. I, I just basically said, like, well, what is, I, I was just basically asked, like, what is the story or issue in your community that you care about so much that, um, because let's face it, like, Tadnisi Coates, the only thing that differentiates 
him from other black thinkers and theorists and writers is that he has a huge white audience. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and I mean, he's a great writer, but there's tons of great writers out there, you know? And, um, and uh, so, you know, let's flip the question and ask, what is the story or issue that you care about so much that even uh, without money, which is what you said, Oxford, or without white eyeballs, you'd still want to tell it. And I think that that is a purity test that you will fail sometimes. Uh, but at least you'll learn more about your own desires and yourself um, and the dead ends, perhaps, and, and avoid some dead ends uh, to not pursue. I know who the Asian Ta-Nehisi Coates is. Who's that? Jeff Yang. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, y'all shit on him so much. I don't... Uh, uh, we talked a lot about writing and, and career. Uh, I think for the last segment, why, why don't we talk about like our personal relationships as we as we enter our thirties? And I don't just mean romantic relationships, although I think that is something definitely worth talking about. But also relationship with family, with friends, how how friendships change as, as we get older. So yeah, let's let's take it from there. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm, so for me, it's um, I think more complicated. I mean, not more complicated, but for me, it's personally complicated because it is like when I think about my personal relationships these days, it's about moving towards like some semblance of like Asian identity that wasn't particularly present prior to this. So for full context, like I grew up in like a pretty uh, I'm halfway. I grew up in like a pretty like not like white neighborhood, but like white school system. And I think that proximity, like kind of I have fooled myself into thinking that I had some like way into that and i think that is true for some mixed race people my real life lives experience because of like only growing up with like a japanese mother uh and just also how like people read me you know uh visually which i still think i'm like a pretty 50 50 read like you could really read me either way made it so that i like couldn't really have like a hundred percent say on that while also being like having to come at some point into contention with the fact that like i'm not like white like it just it actually didn't work i convinced myself that i was and it just didn't make sense um but i mean in terms of just like bringing that back in like thinking about my personal relationships i think a lot of them like i'm like it's funny like talk going back to work like i'm working in a place that is like a white majority and like people of color i've like talked about in these like very specific ways of like in terms of the coalition and like a very liberal ideology um which i think has value it's just like so weird for me to place myself in that coalition working with like plan a and like thinking about that in the day-to-day and like keeping up on like messages and stuff twitter or even and like thinking about asian american identity in these like very substantive ways that i think i actually connect with and also in ways i don't connect with at all because it's like i'm i'm basing my like relationships that i value the most based on that information and so it's funny going back get like with this job in where they're like thinking about like race as a coalition it doesn't actually make that much sense to me because it's ultimately like a coalition is talking about what it means to be like not white uh and i like i have like i've thought a, a great deal about that but like what it means to be like not white and everything but i'm like i'm like so not interested in that conversation in the sense that like i'm actually interested more in like what am i actually and i think if you're actually like pursuing that question I would, Oxford we talked about this a little bit before of just like specifying the differences 
beyond like what it means to be Asian, just like specifically what that is, whatever it's like Korean, Chinese or Japanese, East Asian, Southeast Asian, like specificities, specificities of that, that I don't think really get like the chance to be discussed because it becomes so much of a coalitional politic. Uh, I hope that, you know, going into New Year that we have more opportunities to really like flesh out those like pretty significant differences because I think they are really substantial in these ways that we don't really talk about. We don't get the chance to talk about because we're always like on this like defense building armor bullshit stuff. It's hard going back to this job and like having coalitional politics with people who are like, you know, just such a vast difference where it's like indigenous, black and like Latino, not because I don't really value hearing those things. I actually do want to learn a lot about that stuff. But the thing is, when we're in those coalitions, we don't actually talk about those things. We talk what it means about to be not white. And I feel like Asian American discourse is in a very similar place of like constantly rehashing this question of separating ourselves in proximity to whiteness and like defending our ability to like be not white when really it's like that's such like a baseline thing you know we never actually get to suss out that shit yeah the 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 party line is basically like oh you know uh sort of outside in the wider world we'll be in this coalition yeah. inside this community intra community we will talk about what it means to be japanese and korean and chinese and whatever but that latter conversation actually never happens. It never, it never materializes. You're totally right. Yeah. And if it does happen, it's like things are so loaded and we haven't talked about for so long that it becomes like this explosion and shit just, just falls apart because it hasn't been digested. It's not actually digestible at all. It's yeah. actually like pretty impossible to have that. Yeah. Even in those like intra-community discussions, then you'll get accused of excluding this group or that group. Um, so it's it's not going to... Yeah, it, it it's a conversation that people want to avoid. I think it stems from this fear of isolation. Like the further we fragment ourselves, the more, even more defenseless we'll be against not only being outnumbered, but also being part of this identity that has no, uh, whether it's, there's no political value to it, there's no moral value to it, um, there's no real cultural value to it. So it's, it's just like, let, let, let's try to find commonality with everybody out there, no matter how attenuated because we sure as hell can't stand on our own. Right. Uh, and, but then it just, the, it's going to just become just kind of boring because you, you just, you're just like bleaching yourself of any uniqueness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to bring it back to your question too, of like your interpersonal relationships, like I, I, the more work that I put into that, you know, the more that question actually comes up is like what the differences are. Like I was dating this person who's a transracial adoptee, Chinese, for a bit and i like was going it's like i mean we're still friends but like it didn't end up being like a dating thing but it's just like it's been one of the most like profound relationships of my life personally just because i mean there is like an element of like the separation to asianness that i think mixed race and adoptive narratives kind of like hold while being completely like different that i think is just like you never really get to hear that shit you don't ever like comprehend like when you're like growing up that that is like something else that someone has perspective on in any coherent way while also being able to like say that like these aren't actually the same thing at all conversely i think it's also in terms of like my personal relationships with family like uh we talked about how like my mom earlier was like talking about going back to visit japan she's in her 60s now she's got like early onset alzheimer's and is like thinking more about like her regrets in terms of like distancing herself from like the Japanese community. 
and what it means to be like third generation uh, Sansei, like in versus my perspective where that has just been like such a very different experience of not being like whole Japanese mixed race. Like there's still like huge differences to that. To me, those are the conversations I really invested in. And so I hope I, 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 I think that like the next step really is like talking about those really difficult conversations about like what actually is different instead of like saying like we experience these things the same, we experience these things the same. Because I think that has been more okay to say recently, but I, I don't actually think it is very possible so far in term in those very personal ways to talk about what the differences are without like feeling so much is at stake if you like break if you start breaking into that like edifice. You know what I mean? Yeah, Ray, you and I were talking last night. You were saying about your your parents uh, admitting to to certain mistakes they made, uh, you know, at, in terms of child rearing. And I think the thing that you realize as you get older is that I think as parents also get older, they either become aware of their mistakes more, or at least they're more willing to discuss it with you. Because when I think when you're younger, they have to maintain the position of authority. But as they get older, they're dealing with their own personal, like maybe failing health. Uh, you know, they're, they're getting closer to you know the the end of their lives. They'll they'll probably become more open about that with you. And as we get older ourselves, the I think the question comes to us: um, if our parents have made mistakes, how much of it is on us to fix them? And I think and we talked about duty, uh, and I think as as we get older, that's something that affects us. Uh, the way it manifests for me, it seems has a lot to do with questions of marriage uh, because my parents and I, we get along. Uh, it, like There are no ill feelings towards us, but we're not a very communicative family. And part of that may just be our nature, but a big part of that was the fact that they immigrated. There are a lot of difficulties associated with that um, in addition to the, the inevitable problems of, of language and just cultural barriers. And it's to the point where we, don't, we just don't talk that much. And my reading of them is that they see whoever I marry as the determinative factor of whether we remain some kind of cohesive family unit. In other words, unless I marry somebody who is kind of from their approved social circle, they're not going to be able to relate to her. I will drift more towards my future wife and, and whatever family we form. And that will be uh, the start of the end of our relationship between my parents and me. On one hand, I totally see their point of view. On the other hand, that is the rest of my life. To what extent do I owe them the rest of my life, considering that I feel like uh, a lot of things I've done uh, in terms of especially like my career and stuff has been at least significantly in order to uh, make them happy, make sure that they don't have to worry about me. Yeah, I mean, I think what's what, what was really like eye-opening about that when you were sharing it last night about, about that particular story was that they see your marriage and who you marry and specifically the, this, this person uh, that is a daughter-in-law as a possible new beginning for their family to sort of um, perhaps amend uh, mistakes that were made within the family before. And that is, it seems like, on the one hand, it seems like it's great that they have some hopes for change. On the other hand, they're sort of like how hyperbolically they are pinning it to this one right. thing and is really unfair bad to for her. Whoever and you. that person is, yeah, you have the weight of the world on on her shoulders. Yeah, 
yeah i mean uh for me i mean i, I mean duty manifests in many different ways i think like and i'll just be kind of from more the you know um second gen perspective with first gen parents is that i think that it takes a, a long time for often first gen uh, parents to shed immigrant survivalism that is sort of you know economic viability at, at all costs and for them to come to grips with sort of like and, and my parents have undergone this as well uh, for them to come to grips with holy shit like I could have parented maybe slightly differently uh, you know of course like hindsight is twenty twenty, and um, what Oxford was referencing yesterday was a really I think meaningful for me conversation uh, that I had with my dad one time where he basically was um, said like hey like I know that we definitely made mistakes but hopefully we have a lot of years left in both of our lives and that there's room to grow uh, and change like have great years um, now I, I don't want to be prescriptive about that the idea that like I do think like some some parents are actually more kind of plateaued or, or less malleable than others like I think that my, like I could never imagine my mom saying that uh, but my dad has said that and I think that 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 is definitely like a note of hope um, you know I, I I'm actually I've always been very thankful for my parents because they've never been prescriptive. They didn't want to be go to med school. They're totally cool. I was doing the whole English thing and living in China, kind of like finding myself and whatever. They never gave me like economic pressure. They're always supportive economically. But I do think lately um, they don't, they don't give me any economic pressure, but they're just like, Hey, like figure certain things out. I think that certain milestones have had uh, sort of like very hyperbolic symbolism in their minds um of like marriage and finishing certain things and i think like i think a lot of that does have to do with the fact that they can't expect that from my brother and you know i'm not that type of asian who's just like fuck it i'm i'm american <laughs> duty has no place in my mind Ooh. you know i think like collectivism is beautiful in some ways yeah. i do think duty though can be a bottomless pit though and that was something i was telling to my mom and my aunt even this time when i was in boston because you know like my uh, my grandpa who was like the patriarch of the family um he was also like you know like had a very privileged position in china like he was like um where he worked at a university um like he passed five years ago and i think that they had they being uh, my aunt and my uh, mom had a ton of guilt that they didn't visit him enough. And particularly during his last years, his death came in a surprise. They did not, they were kind of expecting maybe they spend more months there and they weren't expecting him to go that quickly. So they just have been dealing with this grief for the last five years, just kind of like filling that grief with some kind of way to kind of give back in his honor, whether that be through like, interviewing p colleagues that he knew of or like doing stuff in memory of him and like going back to various villages that he was at during the revolution to like you know doing a lot of like family chronicling and stuff but i was like you know that's a beautiful thing and do what you need to do for duty but also like think about how he maybe would want you to live and like set your own limits because that is bottomless you know sure yeah i, I think I think one part for me that is like very personal in terms of my own like relationship with Asian American identity is like the idea of like assimilation in terms of like 
you distancing yourself from that like sense of security of what like familiar expectations are is so like in, in the sense that like like i think if you are like really trying to like move away from um the idea of like asianness that i think is like pretty common for like a lot of second generator generous and just like thinking about things in terms of like uh what it means to be like successfully american and stuff like i, th I think if you're prescriptive to that ideology versus like the ide ideology of like that bottomless pit of being like involved in that i think it is like a, a question of security it goes back to a question of security i don't mean that in just in a financial sense though i think that is like the way that gets talked about a lot i think that also is in terms of like that sense of grief i mean for me personally i'm like now that i'm in therapy i'm going through this process like contending with like the loss of my like grandfather and grandmother which happened like years ago at this point and i'm like coming to contention with the fact that i never really did like grieve it in these substantive ways and that process actually has like made me feel like pretty disconnected from like that greater network of like family existing and i think that is something that my mom is also like guilty of i think just like in general my family just like doesn't really contend with that I don't think that's like an uncommon thing either because I think it is like not dealing with that like level of grief and like disconnection. I think that like we associate that with a very being a very American thing. Like if you want to be American or Canadian, I think it means being like kind of rootless in this way that is like is a fraught conversation because on the one hand, if you want to be successful, it means like kind of like being an entrepreneur falling in line with that like entrepreneurial spirit that independent like following your own dreams and whatnot but also like you lose that like safety net of family like that sense of security that goes beyond just like financial although i think that is deeply part of it for me personally but also on like an existential level of like who are you actually like what are you working for what are you working towards and i don't think that is like a yes or no thing or like something that like any person like has a obvious answer to i think it kind of like goes in both ways no matter what i think it's like a hard line that you have to walk walk and i think is ultimately like the contention for like anyone who is in like first second gen or like for me fourth like that doesn't really actually go away even though we think it does i like going bring i mean i don't want to bring it back completely to john okada but he had like this idea that like he's writing primarily for like first and second geners and then he thought by like fourth gen they'd be like totally assimilated and it, i remember reading that and thinking how hilarious it was because <laughs> here i am reading his book having these conversations being in this room with you being half white like all these things that would indicate that i was like fully assimilated and yet it's not really i'm like forcing the square peg through a round hole i don't know i mean i i it's like this hard balance that i don't think we we think is a lot more doomsday scenario of like fading off into like our asianness but actually it's something that kind of like haunts way longer than we ever actually allow intellectually speaking yeah john's timeline was a bit off yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean who knows what the future may bring definitely but <laughs> yeah fourth gen it, it's, it's not it's not pulling out man <laughs> i'm sorry to say <laughs> not sorry but you know Oh, well, I mean, just to sort of round out the the answer to your original question around relationships too, I definitely have seen uh, more of a uh, contraction of like relationships, uh, particularly friendships. I mean, I, d I definitely think that there is that type of friend who thinks uh, friendship is 
it's kind of a um it's like training wheels before you 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 get married it's something you shed oh wow that that's so bleak it is really bleak yeah and i i definitely think over the last maybe 10 or 15 years i i've you know been pretty good about filtering people like that out but i but i <laughs> shoot, think, shoot get away no actually though but like i think that uh that's an extreme but we have small versions of that too you know i mean even something that is kind of interesting is just, just sort of like i i'm in these you know i'm in a committed partnership of three years and i sometimes we're in these um we're, we're pretty independent like which is why i often do trips and she often does trips like without me and um but you know we still are in social situations where the um the most like atomic unit is that of the couple you know and uh it sucks i don't know there's just like the the social expectation for that is kind of like fascinating you know um and then you know you add in like people with kids and it's just like a whole nother a whole nother thing um do you guys have i know i'm like the oldest in the room by like at least a year or two but uh do you guys have yeah a lot of people oh, because in partnerships a lot of my college friends are now more in that settled mode and i think it's no accident no it's not a co- it's not it's not a coincidence that we've drifted apart yeah um because they have their own thing now they're looking to move to they're looking to buy homes they're of uh, some of them have kids now and the type of people they hang out with are also people on a similar trajectory so I'm sure in their circle, it's probably like that. Everyone there uh, is is on the marriage track or are married. Everyone has like a six-month-old or are or, or expecting. Um, but recently, I had a, we did a pod with Millie and M. Toomey. And we just, I think it was after a pod, we just started talking. And it was like, we're the rare group that people who just seem to be getting more radical as we get older, which is really against the grain. And I think it is because you're not in those couple dominated types of groups which force you to think more conservatively not not in a political sense but just you become more risk averse because you're no longer just living for yourself your your like cloud of concern shrinks because you now have to take care of kids or your spouse whatever you can't be afford you, you can't really afford the mental energy to, to care about what's happening in like other countries or even in your own country maybe um so that that was a interesting observation i had i i think for, for me personally kids are like a kind of an existential c- conclusion that is like i i think you can like easily answer these like questions to like what we've been talking about broadly in this pod with kids by like putting your like time energy i don't mean that as like an easy thing i think like having kids is a very difficult thing i'm saying as someone who has like put a lot of thought into like wanting kids watching my niece and nephew grow up and like thinking like yeah i could do that i could probably do a pretty fucking good job too (laughs) you know but at the same time i think it's like watching my friends who like kind of are going through that process right now who are like a little bit farther along and their like life projections and stuff it's like you 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 get done with that question of like what is ex- existentially what are you doing with your life and it's like very uh you know you can you know you just know you, and like you have every day like this question that you have you have to answer and you just move through that if you're not doing that you're just a bad parent you're just a bad person you're just like, a bad person <laughs> yeah yeah and so you you just become a better parent and that by like virtue of that you also become like kind of a better person and 
I think that is like a pretty common way to kind of answer that question. It's a very difficult way to answer that question. I don't want to like minimize that at all because totally. so I think it's a deceivingly easy way, right? Because like, oh, it's just a natural. It's it's like established, right? Yeah. But a lot, I think a lot of people. Uh, that's how you get a lot of people who aren't really fit to be parents, right? And I don't mean that because they don't make enough money. I'm just like mentally, uh, you know, they're just like, I don't know. They have all these regrets about things they never did in their life, and you know, and that gets that shit gets passed on to the kids, your spouse, right? And you know, that's not a good place to be. I think yeah. The more the, I mean, obviously this is not primary data, but just from friends and uh, like reading about it, um, and I, I, I. I I, I am actually like reading more about it, like actually books on kids, because I think it's something that people have like really gut reactions to that are like totally just unquestioned and uncritically examined. Sure. Um, but um, like one thing, it, it does feel like existentially easy, but logistically hard. Existentially be easy basically be, being like, oh, yeah, this kid's going to like bring meaning into my life, which I, I think is like really fucking selfish. You yeah, know, sure. Um, having a kid be like an existential anchor, but at the same time, I don't know. Like being a millennial, existential anchors are great. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think it. I think it. I think more and more these days about like going forward, particularly at the start of your thirties. It's a question that you are like more aware that you actually do have to answer at some point. You don't have like unlimited time to like kind of just waffle exactly what your options are and it's like if you don't really have the answer to that immediately it's like all right you you just do kids you're gonna settle down you do kids because you just haven't answered that question but if you're like also thinking about the option of like what do you do instead which i mean i think is like more i think there is like a trend towards like thinking that more in a moral sense just in terms of like the scope of how things are going in the world, things feel kind of doom and gloom. If you're actually thinking about your kids, you're thinking about how much more miserable their lives are going to be than your own as a millennial. Like you have to contend with that fact. I think about that with my niece and nephew all the time. Like if you're actually like thinking about that far in advance, it's a much that existential question actually isn't getting addressed anymore by having kids. It's like you, if you actually are concerned about them and not just about like your own relationship to them, you have to be thinking more beyond just like what your familiar relations are. And you have to be thinking about more as to like, what is the impact I want to leave? What can I do to actually improve things? And that is something that doesn't have a clean answer at all. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is, well, we, I could think we could just talk all night, but we do, we <laughs> yeah. do, we'd have a Christmas Eve party to prep for, um, which by the time this pod goes out, we probably wildly out of date, but I mean, that's, that's what we're going to do. So, Ray and CS, thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Uh, joining us. And for you listeners, good being here. Uh, I'm sure we'll revisit this topic again um, from different angles. I'm sure, with like, I'd, I'd love to hear from like Asian women what, what their perspective is. And we're all guys here. So, well, you'll hear more from that topic. Uh, and until then, um, this is Escape from Plan A signing off. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.